Colossians chapter 3, we're reading today verses 12 to 17. This is God's Word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we take now a few minutes on this particular word from you, we ask that you would give us supernatural attention and devotion to this, your word. We ask that your spirit would clear away from our mind's eye anything that would seek to pluck away the seed of the gospel. We ask that you would tend to the soil of our hearts in a way that only your grace can do and that you would bring about the flowering and the flourishing of us into that image of Christ so that we might live to your praise, your glory, and your honor. Come now and move among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, maybe you'll remember that we began this series entitled Love Will Lead the Way as an answer to a study that the elders did alongside a number of members in our congregation over what does it mean to have Christ formed in us? How do we become those who are spiritually mature? We gathered a couple of men and a couple of women from this congregation who studied alongside an elder and a deacon who ultimately over five months presented what we call the Educational Task Force Report that simply reported on their findings with regards to spiritual growth and maturity. And as they presented that report to the elders, it was adopted unanimously. And in that adoption and in the recommendations of that report was a focused time, the end of the summer and the beginning of the fall, on the subject of Christian formation. How is it that we grow in grace? How does that happen? We said last week, part of the answer, and maybe the simplistic way to answer, is to simply say, God must do it. Now, it's simplistic in the sense that there is a lot of human components and activities and efforts that attend to God's work in that. It's not simplistic in that it is somehow lacking in its clarity or in strength, for indeed, it is only God who brings the growth. But God is pleased to use means. He's pleased to use resources. 
as the means to bring about that growth. And what we are asking, particularly in this series, is what are the means? What are the resources? How does that work? What, in some ways, are the mechanics of spiritual growth? Or what are the organics of being within a context where the, the soil of spiritual growth is tended well? At the right measure of water and sun and fertilizer and the plucking out of weeds and the putting in of nutrients is, is created so that, as we said last week, environments, spiritual environments are created here at Cornerstone for a greenhouse effect to happen within the lives of the membership so that we are those who are growing and, and continuing to grow and prodding forward in our spiritual lives because sometimes we get to places where we're stuck. Sometimes we lose our way. Sometimes we do all the things that we think we need to do, but we're stuck in ruts and nothing seems to be happening. There doesn't seem to be movement. Sometimes we are approaching the good things that God uses to grow us up in a, with a heart that is all disarray, that is off-center from the motivations and the directives that God gives us in the Word. How do we get restored? What does renewal look like? It's these kinds of questions that we are asking together as we approach this text of Scripture, even as we did last week, which means that these sermons are somewhat different than the typical sermons here at Cornerstone, where we're working through a book of the Bible, we're going verse by verse, we're doing deeper exegetical work. In this case, we're oftentimes doing a survey where we're bringing in many texts of Scripture, we're supplementing a variety of ideas so that we can get the full scope of a subject over the course of the next four weeks. So just to note on that, a little different than what we typically do, but I think so needful. And I think so needful in part in terms of the timing, because for a lot of you probably here in this room, you've just entered into the last couple of weeks of craziness as school starts off and as sports teams kick off for your kids and piano lessons kick back off and certain vocational rhythms begin to fall back into place and we're officially in the rat race again in some ways where the summer oftentimes gives varying levels of rhythm and rest for us. How is it that we can prioritize the best things and not get it smothered out by the many good things? that the Lord puts in our lives? How do we learn in otherwise? How to love the right things in the right way? That's what we're trying to do in the course of this series. Last week, speaking about ourselves as lovers made to love, we are those who have drives and we have desires. This week, talking about how those get turned, channeled, shaped, and directed in the right measures and ways. And next week, talking specifically about the means of grace and the practices that we must inhabit for that to take place in our lives. So with that as a way of introducing, I want to just remind you of a story that many of you probably already have heard or you, you know. It's a little parable of sorts. It's the story of the stonemasons. There are three stonemasons. They're working very hard. It's the middle of the day. It's Sun is risen high, it's noon, it's hot, they're worn out. Someone comes alongside, sees the project that they're working on, turns to one of the workers and says, what is it that you're doing? The worker says, I'm putting one stone upon another. He turns to a second worker and he says, hey, what is it that, that, that you're doing? He says, I'm just 
I'm making a living. And he turns to his third worker and he asks him, now what is it that, that you're doing? And he said, I'm building a cathedral. Now I want to ask you, which worker responded rightly? Now they all responded in some ways truthfully. They were all making a living. And the function of their work was stacking one stone upon another. But only one of them saw the purpose. Only one of them could see the vision of what was actually being accomplished. It was the one who said, I'm building a cathedral. The one who is saying, I'm building a cathedral, is one who is seeing through faith, through vision, what is the end completion of what it is he's pursuing. He's got the end in view as he lives. By having the end in view as he lives, it gives shape to the formation of the way in which he lives. The one who had forgotten what it is he was doing was simply stacking one stone upon another. He had no sense of the whole. The one who was making a living was essentially said, this is simply a means to get by. But the one who says, I'm building a cathedral, has a sense for the purpose, for the actions in which he is taking. The end is giving shape to the way it habits what it is that he's doing. They're all working hard, repetitively, and somewhat monotonously. But one of them had the energy of faith. How do we get there? How do we keep, as it were, that perspective? Don't we often ask that question to ourselves? If I could only just remember what was said or that this was true. If I could only live in this place all the time, but we forget. We lose sight. Our hearts get turned, channeled toward other things. And we see our lives sometimes as just putting one stone upon another. We read earlier in the service, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, where writer, the writer Titus says to us, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And notice what this salvation does. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. And it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see what Titus is saying? He's not saying the law whips you into shape. He's saying when you have received the love of God in salvation... It begins to reorient your affections to such degree that you have placed the horizon of Christ's face at the forefront of the way that you live. So much so that you want to not do the practices that would hinder you and you want to continue to do the practices that will accelerate you towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the finish line. You behold his face by faith. And now you begin to realize if I fall into these things, it'll hinder me. If I fall into these things, it'll beget more wind at my back as I run the race that is set before me. This morning, as we look at Colossians chapter 3, we want to have something of the portrait of that vision before us. Lord, we are seeking that. Lord, come and do that among us. Give us that vision. 
And so we want to look at three things this morning. We want to look at the heart. We want to look at the habits. And we want to look at the hero. We want to look at the heart. We want to look at the habits. And we want to look at the hero. We might even put it this way. We want to explore how the heart changes. And that's done by the habits. While they're looking at the hero. We don't want to explore how the heart changes. And it's done by the habits. While we're looking at the hero. So let's look at this together. Let's look at what it means to have the heart changed. We all would like to see some pieces of our heart changed. How does the heart change? Well, maybe before we can even answer that question, we should ask the prior question, what exactly is the heart? What is this thing called the heart? In the Bible, it's a complex reality. It's the very center of our beings. It's the thing that we would call or say that drives us. It's not exactly our mind, though it includes the mind, because the Bible teaches us that the heart thinks, as we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible tells us that the heart feels, as we hear in Psalm 27, 3, that our, our heart sometimes fear. We pray that it would not fear. As we also read that the heart does things, that the heart commits evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. It does evil things, it does good things. All of these things flow out of or are connected with this thing called the heart. So it thinks, it feels, it does. It's why the Puritans would regularly call the heart the place where the thoughts and the feelings and the will all come together. It's the place where they intersect. It's what we might call the operation. It's the driver of what's going on within us. It's that place where we hunger. You know what it's like to hunger? I hunger a lot, it seems. A lot for food. I love food. And when I hunger for food, guess what? I'm driven for it. I want it. I want it. I want it to satisfy me. And you know what I begin doing? I begin thinking about food. And then if I get stopped from getting that food, I get irritable. If I get that food, I feel happy. And, and, and as I am driving towards it, it makes me act. It makes me get off the couch and go to the pantry or drive down to a restaurant. And all of those pieces come together. Why? Because there's a hunger down deep that, in, that triggers thoughts, that makes feelings come, that causes me to act. It's the place where the heart is intersecting in the three major components of our being. That's where our heart is. So it's easy to identify our heart. Jesus tells us, he gives us a quick prescription, Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A simple way, I think, to identify the, the place or the location of your heart is to ask your heart this question. What is it that you cherish? What is it that you really cherish? I think that word cherish is important. Because the word cherish brings together the idea of attraction. It's something you're drawn to, but it also has the idea of value. It's something that you hold dear or that something is very precious to you. 
So, so for instance, there are things that you're attracted to that you don't necessarily hold dear. There are things that are beautiful that are out there that, you don't, that are not necessarily capturing your imagination. They're not capturing your mind or catching, capturing your affections. Then there are times that you, you value something that's very dear to you that's not particularly very beautiful. But when these two things come together, this thing that you're attracted to and this thing that you value, you're beginning to see something that's, very, that's something that you cherish. This week on Facebook, many moms within our congregation and within the community were taking pictures of little ones who were headed off to school. And they had their new backpacks and their new sneakers, and they were all excited, many smiles, probably some tears behind those pictures. But nevertheless, those pictures were very pretty. And in those pictures, sometimes the mom would write at the top of that picture, my heart, as there was a picture of her children, beautiful, bells on, ready to go to school. She's saying, I have attracted of affection and I cherish this. That's what she's communicating. Now, this is why one writer put it this way, our hearts in, in many ways are the things that is our compass. It's the thing that directs the direction of our lives. It guides us. It's also the engine that compels us simultaneously. It does both of those things. It points us and it pushes us. It's what Augustine referred to as a kind of gravitational pull. He didn't use those exact language. He was long before Isaac Newton. But what he means within the writings on Christian teaching when he says this, my weight The thing that's heavy about me is my love. Wherever I am being carried, it is my love that carries me. Now, I think a funny way to describe that is you've put a a backpack on your back where it's been far too heavy. And when you did, you began to go backwards instead of forwards. What your love is is where your weight is. And where the weight is is where you get pulled. That's what Augustine's trying to say. Your your love is your weight. It's the thing that pulls you. He says in Confessions that we have a particular weight to us that we are destined for or should be destined for. At the very end of the first paragraph in his spiritual autobiography, he writes this. You, speaking to God as a prayer, you have made us for yourself. The weight of our being is meant to be tilted towards God, in other words. You've made us, we've been designed for you, to live on you, to live with you. And then he says this, but our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In other words, our lives become agitated, unsettled, imbalanced, compromised in some ways when we begin to weight certain things in our lives more than God. And the direction of our life is towards maybe the lust of the flesh, towards our particular pleasures and comforts, towards our particular agendas, rather than His loves, His purposes, the direction for His trajectories. Paul says... We are those with inordinate desires. Inordinate. Out of the ordinary. Out of order. Our desires are all mixed up. If you missed the beginning of our service this morning, the way we describe that was simply this, that we often love things that we ought not to love. And things we ought to love, we don't love very much. And then among the good things that we actually do love, we often don't love them strong enough. 
Or, or we love them too much and they become idols. They're inordinate. They're all mixed up. They're a mess. And what needs to happen for the heart to change is the weight of our loves needs to shift in the right direction. It needs to be reconfigured. Some of you have probably pulled a trailer before behind a truck or behind a car that's heavily weighted and maybe one side slightly heavier than the other and the weight is not equally distributed as it ought. And as you're driving down the street, you can feel that trailer pull you in certain ways and it'll take over the direction that you are supposed to go based upon the way that the weight is distributed. And if you don't stop and if you don't order the weight, you can't ever expect to safely travel. The same is true for you and me. That the traveling and the journey of the Christian life works rightly when the weight is distributed in the way that it's supposed to be. How does that happen? <laughs> how, does our, how does our loves get well reordered? How does the weight get appropriately distributed if we're giving too much over here and not enough and to places that we ought not go? Well, secondly, we want to look at the habits. The habits, that's really what enters us into Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is talking about practices or habits. The actions that we take that give shape to our hearts. Notice how the Apostle Paul begins there in verse 12. He says, we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is really critical. Right at the very beginning, before the Apostle Paul jumps into what he wants us to do in terms of practice, he says, I want to I remind you of who it is that you are. One of the things that I pray is happening each week as you gather and worship here at Cornerstone and throughout the week as you're reading the scriptures, gathering in small groups, Sunday school environments, other interactions with people, that you're being renewed in your mind and the weight gets distributed this way. You were once walking into the sanctuary and you were thinking, I'm primarily a really terrible mother or I'm a really awesome dad. Or I am really successful in my work. Oh, I'm really a failure in, in my work. There are all kinds of identity markers that you're carrying around. What Paul is doing to distribute the weight where you're weighted, it's depressing to you or it's prideful to you based upon how much you're weighting those identity markers, is he's saying let's distribute the weight this way. You are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I want you to ponder, sit in that for a minute. You are God's chosen ones. Let me tell you what that means. It means that from before the foundation of the world, He set His affection on you. He set His affection on you. And in Christ... He has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. What that means is that all of your sins that you have committed, past and present and even future, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for with his very blood. And that those sins, good or those sins that are evil or those righteousness that is good is not to be the markers by which we live, not be the identity markers by which we sit in, but indeed those have all been nailed to the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now the Father looks at you and you know what he says? He sees holy. 
That's who you are. And then guess what? In that holiness, you are the beloved. He absolutely loves you. There's nothing that you could do to compromise his love for you. Now, if you're hearing that through the power of the Spirit, you know what's happening in your heart? Redistribution of weight. All of a sudden, what really matters and is important about who you are just got equalized correctly. And you know what will happen later today? You'll shift some of that weight around to other things. And you'll see those emotions do all kinds of interesting things. And you'll see your actions follow likewise. Paul, at the very front of this passage, is saying, here's where the weight of your identity needs to be placed. Now, if that's who you are, friends, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Be that person. That's who you are. Why don't we get to know him or her? Why don't we grow into being actually what we have already been made in Jesus Christ? Notice how he says it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And then down in verse 14, he uses the same metaphor. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, this is who you are. How do we live, Paul? By putting these things on. Now, who are these things most characteristic of? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, love. Who, who, is, who are we real? Who has those characteristics fully and completely? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's never fallen. What is he saying? He's saying, put on Christ. That's the very words that he says in Romans 13. He uses that language, put on Christ. You're already in Christ. Now put him on. Live the identity that you are. Grow in to what it is that you are, but it's going to take work. You're going to have to go through some actions, what we might call practices. You're going to have to put these things on. Now, I want you to imagine yourself in the midst of a department store at the mall and you pull a shirt off the, the rack and you love the way it looks and you're hoping you'll love the way it looks on you. So you go to a dressing room and you try it on. That's the metaphor that the Apostle Paul is using. He's saying, I want you to clothe yourself in the clothing of compassion. Clothe yourself in the clothing of humility. I want you to clothe yourself in kindness. I want, you to, I want you to clothe yourself with the kind of conduct that when you are sinned against, you bear with another and you forgive them because you know how much Christ has forgiven you. I want that to be the dawning of your robe. I want that to be what's about you. And above all of these things, notice what he says in verse 14, I want love because here, you know what love does? It draws the entire wardrobe together. It pulls together the perfect peace that harmonizes all of the other virtues around you if you've got the loving center. Ladies, you know this a lot better than I know, but there can be that one thing in the ensemble of the wardrobe that pulls the entire wardrobe together. That's love. That's what he's saying. In the wardrobe of the virtues of being clothed in Christ, it's love that ultimately it's what animates compassion. It's what animates kindness. It's what animates and produces humility. Love does that. Who's love? Well, the love of God for us in the gospel. 
As we receive that as the beloved, we begin to put on those things that we have received. But this language of trying on, this language of putting on, is language of practice. It's language of practice. You actually have to go put it on. You have to do something. And in many ways, it's the language of recognizing that it takes a while for us to fit into it. See, the Apostle Paul knows that when you go to the rack and you pull off compassion and you put compassion on in the dressing room, it doesn't fit very well. In fact, it's a little too snug. And when you go into the dressing room to put on humility, you find it's a little too loose in the midst of the wardrobe that you, instead of finding compassion in your size, your body has to fit to the size of compassion. That's what we mean by forming. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's that you need to fit into the size that is love. Your life must be shaped in such a way so that you fit into the wardrobe that bespeaks of the character of Christ and His conduct. And as you try these on, over time, over and over and over again, in disciplined pursuit, dependent entirely upon the Spirit to change, guess what begins to happen? They begin to fit a little better. You begin to change. You begin to fill out. You know how you were, you were a little too thin for gentleness? You got a little fatter in gentleness because you needed to? And you got a little slimmer when it came to pride. And the garment of humility now is becoming upon you. The clothing itself is fitting you because you put it on and on and on and on. And each time you put it on, it's a reminder that there's more that still needs to be done and there's the God who will provide the means for that change. We put it on until the clothes fit. It's not like my wardrobe. I've got clothes from every size I've ever been. If I get a little bigger, I get a new wardrobe. If I get a little smaller, I get a new wardrobe. So if ever I get tired of a certain form of clothing, I just gain weight or lose weight. That's how it works. <laughs> but that's not how it works here. There's, there is the size of love that I must fit into, that you must fit into. And we're striving in practicing. Notice, practice, put on. He didn't say sit back and receive. He said this is not like a lecture hall where you get the right information. This is more like a guitar lesson where you, where you gain muscle memory. There's something really different about reading a book on the guitar and playing the guitar. In fact, they're pretty radically different. It's really different looking at a cookbook than it is cooking the meal that's in the cookbook. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you just read a cookbook, you don't get fed. <laughs> Until you put on, as it were, the exercise of cooking. And after you do the exercise of cooking for a while, what happens? 
it begins to fit. You know things that you didn't once know. Things that you never put together, now you know they work. And you begin to grow in what we would call instinctive formation. You begin to walk in the discipline of the thing and your conduct and your life shapes to it. I was playing guitar with, with Rosalind the other day. We were on the couch. She's been taking some guitar lessons this summer. And I hadn't played in a while, but I do play and picked up the guitar. And it's amazing how fast your fingers remember. The memory, the formation was there. But when you're first learning, it seems so hard to get your fingers to do that. What they're supposed to do. But after a while, they get formed you pick it up. It's more like an internal disposition that over the course of giving yourself over to it, you're shaped. We want to be people who are instinctively compassionate. We want to be a people who are instinctively humble. Let me give you a clue. If you have to think about being compassionate, you're not there yet. If you have to go, should I be compassionate? <laughs> If, if you're instinctively compassionate, like it's def becoming default setting, it's happening. The formation is happening. Your heart is being knit together with the heart of God and you're living in submission to His power, to His strength, to His way. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul means in verse 15 when he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here's the fruit of it. The fruit of the overtaking of these virtues when it begins to truly flower within you is that the peace of Christ begins to rule in your heart. The harmony that came from the putting on of love begins to take root and you become a person who is full of thanksgiving. Full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a hard perspective to create because we live as people who are perpetually under the assumption of scarcity. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough things. But the person who's been shaved by the habitation of the love of God, who has the peace of Christ ruling their hearts, they can always see what there is to be thankful for. They can see that God has particularly provided what was needed. He may not have provided everything we wanted, he did that because he loves us. He only provided what we needed. Isn't he kind? Isn't he kind? You know, we want children, right, who pick up their rooms not because they're told or because there's a law or because they'll get disciplined, but because they want to pick up their room. They want a clean room. They want an ordered life. We've got a long way to go. We always have a long way to go. But as we form the habits, what happens is we actually get shaped by them. The heart begins to change. The love weight begins to shift. And as we do so, whether we're successful or whether we fail, guess what we're doing the whole time? We're looking to the hero. The heart, the habit, the hero. Well, you see, at the end of the day, it's not going to be whether or not you complete your formation and you are on your own energy and effort presented perfect and made whole in Christ, Ephesians 3. It's that God promises that he will do that one way or another in your life. And as we submit to the rigors that is Christ, well, it begins to take over us. 
I think at the very end of this passage, one of the things that the Apostle Paul is doing when he says things like, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We're going to talk more about that next week. But part of what he's showing us is the habits or the practices that begin to give form and shape to our loves. You see, God's wisdom in having you here this morning in the sanctuary is that hopefully by the power of the Spirit, what He's doing right now, what you're experiencing, if you're in step with the Spirit and His truth, is you are, your heart is being recalibrated again. And all of the things that the world had formed you by and all the thoughts and the beliefs that you've rattled around with all week are now being discarded and overcome by the power of the Spirit that's forming you so that this might stick a little further in your life coming this next week. And that's, what, that's why the very end of this passage sounds a whole lot like a worship service. Teaching and admonishing one another, singing songs and prayers, right? It sounds a lot like what we call the means of grace. The places where we are restored to sanity and over time, formed for the direction of love, right things rightly, in the right way. That's why we need this, you see. Now, let me be honest. Sometimes it feels like you're just putting one stone upon another. Like tomorrow morning, like when you know you're supposed to read your Bible (laughs) or to pray, or to do something for your husband or your wife, or to serve when you really don't want to. But if you put it on, if you try it on, it begins to take form over time. But you got to see that you're not just stacking stones upon another. And you're not just making a living. You're building a cathedral. That's what you're doing. No, check that. God is building a cathedral. And you are his cathedral. You are his cathedral. That's exactly what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. You're being built up into a spiritual house. God is building you, living stone, into a cathedral. And when you give yourself over to the patterns of formation that change the heart from the inside out, and you begin to inhabit His path and His loves, you begin to see the cathedral in ways that you've never seen it before. And it becomes more beautiful to you. It becomes more valuable to you. It begins to capture your heart. We want to be a people that that's true of. We want to see God build a cathedral with His people. A place that He is pleased to dwell. That becomes a marker and a testimony for what it is that He's creating and draws the masses to Himself. The heart, the habits, but the one who does the building, the hero. So this week, 
when you don't do what you're supposed to do. (laughs) And you do that thing you ought not to do. And you love those things which are good more than you ought to love them. Or you love those things which are good but not enough. When that happens, because it'll happen, when it happens, look to the hero. He's already finished this for you. And in the rest that that brings to your soul, run the race. Run the race. He'll be sure that you get there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, build your house. Build your people living stones into a glorious habitation of your presence. Even now as I pray, bring into the minds and the hearts of your people the places where they are weakest, both in heart and in habit, and how often they lose sight of the hero. Bring them to their minds right now. Help them know as they remember them that you've already paid for all of the ways that they have fallen short. But it is your desire because of your love to not leave them where they are. You want to take them further. And so, Lord, give us all the energy to go further, having viewed you, our glorious hero. We come to you now with prayers of thanksgiving and petition, asking you work this into our lives. Father God, teach me your way. O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. For as your chosen ones, give us grace to put on love above all else. For it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Father God, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord Jesus, let us walk in love as you have loved us and given yourself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God, that we may make love our aim that comes forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Lord Jesus, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, we can't do anything apart from you. Give us patient endurance. Help us to identify evil and false teaching. Yet let us not abandon the love that we had at first. Let our love be genuine. Teach us to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. Form Christ within us. Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, Hear our prayer.